Welcome to Gospel Conversations. We're continuing our talks on Hebrews, and now we move beyond the foundation of Melchizedek and the resurrection, the argument that Apollos has been uh, very keen to make and has built a very, very strong foundation that renders the law obsolete. But the question becomes, how does he build on that? How does he build accountability? How does he build responsibility on top of the argument? And you can see this in Hebrews because Hebrews has got some pretty sobering warnings in it, the, the, what I call the dark side of Hebrews. And we've got a question here of how do we integrate the dark side, the responsibility side, with all this wondrous talk of the resurrection? So we open a big door in this talk. We're going to build on it in future talks. It's about Hebrews in the world of judgment, Hebrews in the world of accountability, Hebrews in the world of responsibility. Now, we open up with something that's pretty important, which is the limits of law-based or sin-based thinking to be very useful as a model in life. In fact, it seems to be a model that's counterproductive. And we begin by asking the question, how can the resurrection, how can the creation gospel and its responsibilities impact me in day-to-day -day life? And we try to build a new paradigm around Christian growth and responsibility in this talk. And we do it by picking out this extraordinary use of the word being made perfect. Being made perfect. It's a, it's a very strong theme in Hebrews and it's applied first to Jesus, just as the resurrection was applied first to Jesus and then applied to us. So now being made perfect is applied to Jesus. This is strange because he's divine. The argument is he's the Logos, the son of God. He, he was there creating the universe, sustaining the universe. So how on earth, what, what mental model does Hebrews have, does Apollos have around this claim that the divine Logos, the Christ, went through some kind of process of perfection, being made perfect? What does this mean? And if we can crack that, if we can get inside that, well, we'll open a door to what our trajectory and pathway is because the whole argument of Hebrews is that we should fix our eyes on the Logos, on the divine, on the Christ. And as we do that, the implications for our lives will become clear. So that's the bundle of ideas in this talk. God bless you and enjoy it. Continuing with Hebrews, the topic is um, resurrection and judgment. Um, and what I want to do tonight is open a door I don't know that we'll go entirely into the landscape beyond it, but uh, it's loosely trying to reframe the whole dark side, I suppose, of the Bible to do with judgment. Uh, so I'm using judgment as a catch-all phrase for things like process of sanctification, the process of suffering and chastisement, w words like this, um, you know, dire warnings, so sober warnings. And it's obviously a big, big topic area. We won't go completely into it tonight, but we'll, we'll, my, my main goal tonight is to create some new frameworks, because I think the way that we all understand things is through frameworks that tend to filter and uh, distort or enlighten 
how we view something. And for quite a long while, I've, I've had the feeling that um, you know, some of the frameworks around judgment and uh, another topic which I'd like to get into sometime is evangelism, you know, which in a sense is an associated topic as well, because I think the, the creation gospel seems to have different ways perhaps of framing the evangelism task as well. We might talk about that. Um, but tonight, uh, let's, let's kind of push the door a bit ajar. So I'm going to use, uh, I'm going to use uh, Hebrews as a launching pad to, to try to budge some of the paradigms we might have and that I might have as well. This is an exercise of exploration for myself. Um, <clears throat> resurrection trumping religion is the overall theme uh, that, that we've attached to the book of Hebrews. Uh, this is the Anglican Confession that I'm going to return to in a moment, one of, one of the documents that I love criticising. Um, and uh, so I thought I'd you know, create some structure to the criticism tonight um, with a story. And uh, the story is my experience, you know, and I must say we go to a wonderful church St Andrews Rosewell, I mean, I, I think they do a great job and John's a great preacher and, and, and so anything I say must be read within the, um, that admiration and the fact that I tell everybody what I think about the confession if they'll listen to. So this is, everyone knows what I think, anyone who talks to me does. But it's, it's almost like the tip of an iceberg. Um, and uh, the story is that I think, you know, a lot of evangelical Christian, a lot of Christianities had a sin-based frame. And this is a really big issue here because it's, 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 it's as if the kind of diagnostic we've offered and offer to the world is the diagnosis of sin. It's the major diagnosis for what's wrong, the major diagnosis for any situation. Now, the issue with that, and, and, and if we go back to the, to the uh, where I began with the confession, I mean, every service begins at 10 a.m. and because they are going to re read the confessional prayer they'll have an opening about it I, you know what's coming and uh, so this is the prayer that we're asked to pray most merciful God I think there are different versions of it most merciful God we humbly admit that we need your help that's fine I mean I guess we need God's help I'm pretty good, cool with that we confess that we have wandered from your way uh, we have done wrong and we have failed to do what is right. You alone can save us, have mercy on us. Wipe out our sins and teach us to forgive others. Um, so I'm invited there Sunday morning at 10 o'clock to diagnose the week that's just passed and wonder exactly where I wandered this week. Um, where I have done wrong, I don't like perjuring myself. Like if I, if, to be honest with you, a lot of times it's the bad game of golf I played yesterday that's hanging over my mind like a dark shadow. But nonetheless, what have I done wrong? And I have failed to do what is right. Now, I mean, I, I like the last sentence, bring forthness and the fruit of the spirit, but this is actually inviting me to ponder the week through the prism of sin spotting. Um, now, that, here's my week, like, this is my week, I think, what did I do this week? Uh, 
really intense discussions with a young family friend, young professional, uh, pretty angst-ridden about their disappointing, frustrating experience of promotion to management and the irritation of dealing with bosses who don't know what they're talking about, who happen to be Christians, by the way. Coincidentally, it's not a Christian institution. Um, and uh, seem to have uh, let this person down. That, that was pretty dominating in my week. Wandered from your way, done what I shouldn't have done. Is there a sin in this? Perhaps she sinned. Perhaps she sinned because she's angry with them. There's a go. That could help. Uh, I don't think that would take the conversation very far. Perhaps they've sinned by not delegate. Is, is delegation a sin? Is the failure to delegate a sin? Like, we get tangled very quickly here. It's not taking me very far. There's no wisdom in this. Uh, biggest thing happened to me in the last couple of weeks, we lost a big account. I got the phone call from hell. Phone call from hell. If you're a consultant, you live on the edge. Like, my whole life is like applying every day for jobs. You know, it's great when it works, but just imagine what your life would be like if, you, if you're not, if your entire life is you apply for, you apply for a job. It's pretty nerve-wracking, you know. Well, I'm doing it all the time, and I've, I've got a very big bill to pay in here, lots of people I love, and it's, it's, it's like riding big seas. And you, the phone call from hell is, sorry, we've run out of money, we had just had terrible results, I love your work, but I got that. I'm in, I'm in New Zealand. I'm in New Zealand when I get the phone call, five o'clock in the afternoon, I'm preparing for a strategic conversation the next day, actually, it was to Papa Museum, reinventing the museum of the future. So I've got to turn up tomorrow, optimistic, just having got a kick in the guts and spent from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. on the phone, plotting, and a sleepless night. Done what I should not have done, <laughs> syndicate, what, this is, perhaps by being worried about losing the account, perhaps that's sinful, because I didn't trust God. No, that doesn't work very much for me. Uh, perhaps if I lost the account on account of a sin, that'd be worse. Um, Wow, that, that'll get me into heavy waters because this is a big blow. Like, you know, I'm now fantasizing about losing like a million dollars, and this, uh, perhaps it's because of sin. This, well, that's, it, it's a, this is not very useful to me, right? Um, my sweet Anne returns from overseas. We're plunged back into domestic life, and kids, for us, it's grandkids. Um, my dialogue with my Papua and friend re friends resurface, and that's the opportunity to help Papua is revived again, and I'm plotting and scheming with them. Now, that's interesting, because we went up there and in 2009 and thought we were going to do some great stuff, and it didn't work. Well, perhaps it did, I don't know, but there's a lot of frustration. Was that sinful? Perhaps we were sinful. Perhaps, we, perhaps it was hubris. Perhaps it was... Pro pro it's not helping me very much. Um, we're planning a London office. Here we go, the highs and lows. Uh, the same time as I lose a big account, we have uh, simultaneously expansionary plans. Wandered from your ways this week, Lord. Done what I should not have done. Um, really bad golf, like there could have been a few little sins in that. Um, but then if you look at my life, you could say, Tony, you're just, you're too much, it's, it's an adrenaline-based life, life in the fast lane. 
Christians shouldn't be like that, should we drink? No. So what I'm actually just trying to exemplify, I mean, I like being precise. This is my week. This is what comes to my mind. I could keep going, but this is what I've been through this week. And to ask me to parse it through the diagnosis of confession of sin is just like irrelevant. It doesn't, it, it, if I took it seriously, I could, as, as I've tried to, I could get myself into really bad because I could start diagnosing the loss of the London account with the failure to trust, you know, I, I could do that. The loss of the, we lost it all. No, sorry, sorry, not the loss of the, <laughs> the loss of the account. We've still got the London office going. I think that is actually exactly what Bonhoeffer was on about. Because, you know, this is asking me that the, the primary Christian contribution as a framework for the diagnosis of life is sin, or not. Um, so classify, try and classify and interpret what's sinful, what's not sinful. Um, I presume if you find sins, you ask forgiveness for them, and, and then you try to improve. I presume the whole object of a confession is to improve, but I know I'm going to say it again next week, so talk about a system that's got inbuilt failure if I'm going to every week do it. It's, I'm never going to get anywhere. Um, and, and Tony, the older versions wasn't only that I've done what I shouldn't have done and I haven't done what I should have done, but there is no health in us. That's right, there's no health in us. Yes, it was, more, this has been modified, yeah. uh, uh, which is good. But you're right, no health in us and etc. Now... I, and what I'm going to say, uh, let me just make it plain, I mean, none of us here are saying that sin is an irrelevant doctrine. It's very important, but I think the whole point of Hebrews has been taken care of on the cross. That's essentially what Hebrews is saying. And, but as an ongoing diagnosis, the primary diagnosis, for it's a very valuable diagnosis at certain times. You know, I find it very valuable um, to have a commandment saying, don't commit adultery. It just kind of chops off a lot of options. It's really easy. Um, uh, to me, that... That, that's, that's a useful way to say this is sinful. You know. But I, I had a conversation with Ron some time ago and he talked about the fact that... Um, I, know, I know Ron is addicted to uh, the, um, you know, the HBO-type movies, you know, Breaking Bad or Boardwalk Empire. We're all addicted to the... Well, I don't know if we all are, but I certainly, you know, Mad Men, The Good Wife. This is the drama of life, you know. Um, and... Just imagine watching, say, The Good Wife or Boardwalk Empire could find plenty of sin in, but we find the sin intriguing, you know. It's like, a, um, but it's just the, the drama of human decisions, the turmoil of human ups and downs, and and if our only way of kind of contributing to that is via the diagnosis of sin, I think we're left with what Bonhoeffer's point: we have a God of the edges. That's what he meant. We have a God of the edges. It's like. Um, we can talk to you if things go wrong and 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 and, and, the, and the moral side of things, but it's not the core. And you could tell from that that you, there you could well find some some bad behaviour in there. You could find some stuff, but it will be at the edges. It's not the core of any of those problems. So, question being, um, well, what if instead of having you know, if we use the the more creational doctrine as the framework? Um, and having a God of the core, a God of the core of life, speaking to the big things in life, um, then what would we fill the middle in with? So what I'll do is try and have some frameworks and come back to this at the end and try and fill the middle in. I don't know that I've 
I think filling the middle in is by no means a completed task. I'm not going to complete it tonight. But I think we can do a lot better without, again, I do repeat, um, the, 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 the diagnosis of, of sin as the basis of, uh, of the human predicament is fundamental bedrock that I'm not moving away from. I'm talking about the living of life post that. Does that make sense for people, that story? Um, the danger is, of course, if we keep doing this in our churches, that, I mean, I, mean, I, I can sit through this and just it's water off a duck's back to me. I don't take it seriously. I just don't listen. But um, most people do. You know, and they try and fit it in. And, and very eager, you know, young Christians will try and fit like a confessional or a framework in and it's going to be very distorting and it's not also not a great advertisement I think for the magnificence of God that we could, we could have so the question is Hebrews this, this issue of you know in, uh, diagnosis, judgment the dark side, what, what about Hebrews what does it say, where does it sit on judgment now I'm going to use Hebrews tonight more as a springboard. I'm actually, I'm going to use, I'm, I'm going to use a particular verse over and over again, but I'm not going to do what I've done before and look through the overarching part of the book. I will want to return to that because I think I've got about another couple of Hebrews talks to finish it off between now and the end of the year. But the most casual reading of Hebrews will tell you this problem. It's interestingly, I did have a talk with Miroslav about this when we were at Yale. This is his, exactly his experience, even as someone as sophisticated as Miroslav of Hebrews, which has got great grace passages, you know, put them on the, on the fridge door, and, and that's fantastic. It's probably about 80% of the book, but <laughs> paradoxically, it's got these dark passages in it that at face value are pretty confronting. And, um, you know, we, we have talked about the main one, and got that out of the way in Hebrews 6, but, uh, but, but they're there, you know. It's almost a schizophrenic sort of book, so what do you do with that? Um, well, you could try and take these dark passages and fit them into the traditional ideas we might have of you know, judgment, um, or perhaps we'll go further, which is really tonight's. Actually, if we took the creational resurrection base of the book as the paradigm, uh, does it actually reframe our understanding of what's going on, on in the dark sides of life? Where, because in those stories I began with, uh, there were dark sides to those stories. It wasn't like my week was a straight-ahead, glorious week, sun-shining, optimism. It was a week with ups, downs, a, a, just a turbulent mixture of stuff happening, um, which uh, was just this intoxicating mix of human life, hopes, disappointments, um, resistances, confusion. Some stuff works, some stuff doesn't work, etc., etc. Uh, so... Um, let's let's uh, let's look at, now. I just wanted to, uh, before we go further, get specific for you on the dark passages of Hebrews. <laughs> I thought I'd save you the trouble in case you're wondering what they were. I'm not going to go through them all tonight. I do want to actually talk about a couple of them tonight, and I want to next week return to more of them. But it's interesting to see where they do fit because I think. If we go back to what we've done before, which is try to read the book as a whole, and this diagram here, and for those listening on the, um, on the podcast, we'll certainly put the diagrams up on the website. This, this diagram is, is Hebrews on a page. So the first really dark passage, interestingly, is right at the beginning, chapter 2. And it's how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? 
Uh, by the way, I'll say one thing about judgment in Hebrews, which is really interesting, is they are all rhetorical questions. He doesn't actually answer the question ever. It's a technique. He doesn't say, ah, what will happen is you'll burn in hell. It never says that. He just says, you tell me. Like, I don't know, but if God appeared and you said, screw it, I'm not listening to you, I wouldn't be in your shoes for quids. That's what he's saying. I, I don't know. It's a, it's a very good question. And to, to the Jews, the believing Jews, I think this, you know, this one is a very good question. The, 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 the breadth and scope of what God's done is breathtaking. So how are we going to get away with ignoring it? Like, it's, it's very sobering to contemplate that. He doesn't answer the question. The next big one is what we've talked about is chapter 6, and that's the hinge point. Um, that's where he has a pretty sobering passage about We've taken care of the passage in there that, say, that, that says, um, appears to say that, that, that if you uh, move away from the gospel, you can never be reinstated. We've covered that in a previous talk. But it does nonetheless go on to say some pretty sobering stuff about God being like a gardener who, who burns up gardens that don't bear fruit. That's, that's also there. And then the next two are chapter 10 and chapter 12. So it's actually quite interesting to position them because then you can position the warnings in the structure of the argument. I'm not going to do all of that tonight, but, but that's where they are. The one in chapter 6 comes halfway down, where, uh, just after he's said, uh, it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to, to be brought back to repentance... To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to a public disgrace. Those verses have sent chills down the spine of many Christians because it, it appears to say that it's impossible um, if you fall away to renew you to repentance. It appears to say the apostate. Now, this was, um, and thanks, thanks John Dixon for this, uh, gave a talk recently on the Apostles' Creed, where this and other passages, I hadn't heard of this particular heresy called the Donatists, uh, who just prior to Constantine, which I didn't realise that the, the, the most intense period of persecution of the Christian church was just before Constantine took over. So right at, it was like the death throes of the Roman Empire where they just had terrible persecution. So a lot of Christians you know, recanted, and the Donatists said, if you recant as a Christian under torture, it doesn't matter... What you say, you can never, you're condemned forever. You can't get back in. That was their um, very extreme view. But the church ruled that as a heresy. But, but nonetheless, it's like taking that. Of course, what we read it as is he's actually saying you can't keep on confessing for sins because they've all been finished with. And if you, if you keep going through a cycle of confession, you're actually crucifying the Son of God afresh, and you can't do that. He's died once. You can't die again. But he then goes on to say here, uh, the land that drinks in the rain that's often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it's farmed receives the blessings of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless as it, in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case things that have to do with salvation. He's clearly saying in, in this imagery of land and harvest, that's their lives. He's clearly saying that God is a farmer who wants harvest from the land, 
as a metaphor of our lives and from the earth. And if the land doesn't produce and produces thorns and thistles rather than fruit, um, it's burnt. That's sobering. That's sobering. Um, he goes on to say, uh, and, and of course this is part of the sophistication of his argument, we're warning you, and, and this, we're convinced this doesn't apply to you, um, uh, because what w w what we want you to do is to show diligence and not to become lazy. So this is one of the sobering passages um, on judgment. So let's now ask ourselves the question. So let's just refresh quickly um, the, w the the pretty strong, I suppose, doctrine of the of the resurrection that we've come across in Hebrews. And let's say, okay, let's take this as the positive base and build off it into the world of judgment. So it's, uh, Hebrews bases the story in creation. Hebrews chapter 1 begins in creation. It doesn't begin with sin. It begins in God's intentionality in, in, in creating anything. Um, and Christ in the first three or four verses is named. The Logos is named as the formative agent of creation by whom the worlds were made. Um, and he then very quickly, uh, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, aligns humanity with Christ's rule and with Christ's superiority over the angels. He very quickly does that. He, he very quickly puts humanity right at the top with Christ. So his argument is not just an argument about Christ, it's an argument about what it is to be a human being, and he crowns that with Psalm 8. Um, what is man that you are mindful of him and that, that, the, the, that the whole mission of Psalm 8 is that we should rule creation um, he then introduces the resurrection in chapter 2 as the restoration of human rule so, that, that, so that's the, the magnificent chapter 2 um, and, and thus the restoration is you know it, it's not an autonomous act on behalf of Jesus Part of the narrowness of, of a lot of what's called soteriology, which is the study of the, me the mechanisms of salvation, is they're all cross-based, not resurrection-based. But if you have a holistic view, then the resurrection is a soteriological act. It's part of the redemption because it's recreating matter and humanity in the image of God. Um, so... And, and, and Hebrews chapter 2 is probably the greatest source text for that thinking we have. It's, it's stunning. Uh, he then moves on. The therefore is, uh, there is uh, now an argument that there is therefore a new priesthood governing the world. Not, not uh, Aaron, but Melchizedek. The power of an endless life is how he defines that priesthood. This new order obliterates the law. His language is uncompromising. It obliterates the law and renders it useless and puts believers on a once and for all footing with God of which they can be confident. He, he just hammers this point. Um, we cannot lay that foundation again. That's what he's saying in Hebrews 6. It's done once. It's epic. It's, um, it's shifted the tectonic plates of the cosmos. It can't be done again. Um, redemption has the same finality as creation. It's happened um, so now we have a new order, and this new order is, is rooted in Abraham, not Moses, which means 
It's based on promise, not law. And it's, it's therefore, and he's very strong about this, we didn't go into the text of chapter 6 and 7, it is absolutely bound to God's relentless promises. The, the, you know, God is, uh, and the promise is life. Um, now, the, and then we went on to chapters 8, 7 and 8, Christ's zone of operation is the new temple, he's the new tabernacle. And that's why I've got this picture up the top. On the left-hand side is the Jewish tabernacle. The right-hand side is Jesus' tabernacle, which is the cosmos. It's not the tabernacle made with hands. There's a new created order now inaugurated. And this this zone is established in the heavens, secured in the heavens, not yet manifest upon the earth. Um, So whilst Jesus is spoken of at the right hand of the Father, that message is framed that he's going to be coming back and bringing that order to the earth. I, I love Tom Wright's metaphor where people say that Jesus is in heaven and uh, so if Jesus is in heaven, why don't we join him in heaven? And his metaphor is um, um, that uh, if I... What's he say about... It's, it's to do with the fridge and wine being in the fridge, food being in the fridge... If I say we're going to have a feast, oh no, I've lost it. I've lost them. I've lost it. Yeah, it's like you don't go into the fridge to have a feast. You get the food out of the fridge to have the feast. It was he said it more elegantly than that. But um, <laughs> if I'm inviting you to my place to have a feast, you know, I'm not saying we get into the fridge to have it. I'm, we don't. I'm not inviting you to the fridge. I'm going to get it out of the fridge to have the feast. So Jesus might be in heaven now, but we're going to get the food out of <laughs> the, the fridge of heaven. Sorry, uh, let's, let's move on because I, I think I'm losing the elegance of that metaphor very quickly. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's the basis. Now the question becomes, rightio, well given all that, where does human responsibility fit in and where does judgment fit in in the light of that resurrection order? Where does, uh, where does frailty fit in? Where does my messy week fit in? Where does the ups and downs of life fit in? Um, where does failure fit in to that model? So in approaching the question, here are some ground rules I've used. I mean, I keep remembering that the audience to Hebrews is believing Jews. I'm, so for the moment, off the table is the whole issue of what about unbelievers who reject God? He's not talking to those. He's talking to believing Jews. and But very particularly that his whole line of argument is Christ is the code that answers all human questions. Um, There's no autonomous models of responsibility. Christ is the pathway and the pioneer for for all of humanity. And the the great phrases that that organise Hebrews are, fix your eyes on Jesus. It happens, he says that twice, chapter 2 and at the end. So this now, this verse, chapter 5, 9 and 10, is the one that I want to... Pick apart, because it is absolutely an amazing verse. It's, a, it's also unique in the New Testament. And so, so what we have with Jesus now is a pathway. All right, let's just get the principles. In We can recognise in him the truth about ourselves. We have every licence to do that. That's his argument all the way through. In us, you know, the truth about who we are is not in ourselves, it's in Jesus Christ. He's the paradigmatic truth maker for us, so... So, here, here it says, chapter 5, Son though he was, he learned obedience 
from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So this is really remarkable language because it is talking about Jesus as though he had to develop. Although he was, although he was divine. Talking about Jesus having to learn obedience. That's how Jesus learned obedience. But we know that Jesus was without sin. If we don't believe that, we don't have a faith. So therefore we have a process of learning obedience that is without sin. The fact that I'm without sin doesn't mean I do not have to learn obedience. So this has always intrigued me. Always intrigued me. And furthermore, Jesus had to be made perfect. Hang on. Hang on. What's he talking about here? Because isn't Jesus meant to be sinless? So how can you say Jesus had to be made perfect? Now, if he said it once... Perhaps, but this word is repeated at least a dozen times in the book of Hebrews. Right here. The word is made perfect. I'll go into it in a moment. It's repeated at least a dozen times. I'm going to give you most of them. And that equals almost the total usage in the rest of the New Testament epistles. Paul, John and Peter don't use it anything as much as he does. As a matter of fact, their total equals his use, Apollos. And none of them use it to refer to Jesus. So this is utterly unique. Utterly unique. And furthermore, he, they use it adjectivally. It's clearly not central to their argument. It is central to his argument here. This is not some... Um, this, is, this, is, this is not some uh, parenthetical comment he's making. So let's, um, let's explore this because the, this, this, uh, this word of being made perfect seems incredibly important. Now, just a few points that also apply to us. Son though he was. He's already the son of God, but he still has to be made perfect. Hang on, this now applies to me. If you want to go back to chapter 6, that's, that's, that chapter 6 is, and we'll come to it in a moment, is another use of made perfect. But it's to us. This is what he says in chapter 6. Therefore, let us move, us move beyond the elementary teachings uh, towards maturity. Now, the word in the NIV there is maturity. Same word. It's perfection. Is that the same word as perfect? S- same word. It's the same word in the Greek, which I'll come to in a moment. So it's... So here he's saying virtually the same. Look, you all, I know your sons. Don't keep going over it. But the job now is perfection. So he's virtually defined our ongoing task in life as being made perfect. That's how I read it. That makes sense? And it can only be built upon the fact that you're already a son. So being made perfect is, it hasn't got to do with getting rid of sins. It hasn't got anything to do with ingratiating yourself to God or whatever. As a matter of fact, he said, if you, if you keep on going over that, it'll stop you being made perfect. It's got to, this has got to be built upon the grounds of a, a rock-solid assurance. And um, uh, from, from that, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, and I love this, 
he became the source. I don't actually build on this later, but I want to make this point. There's three things at, at play here. Son though he was, that's your foundational relationship. The making of being made perfect is the developmental path of life. What's the result? You'll become the source of blessing to others. I think we can apply that to ourselves. I think that's a really powerful paradigm for our lives. Accepting the rock of assurance, a process of being made perfect unlocks the source of blessing to others. So, I'm saying here Christ is mapping a developmental path, not just a redemptive path. Um, and uh, it seems enormously important to Apollos that we develop. As I think in chapter 6, that whole passage about burning has nothing to do with losing your salvation. It's God's enormous interest in harvest and development. Enormous interest that we develop, rather than stultify and not grow. So... Um, Let's look now at, at, at Christ as the exemplar for, for God's rule upon the earth. Um, that is the nature of, of God's rule in the created order. Um, and there are three big words I want to look at. The first is perfection. Um, it, the root word in the Greek is, t- is telos, T-E-L-O-S. Um, so the, the, the phrase used a dozen times in Hebrews is all built on the word telos. Now telos is a very important concept in Greek. It means the end, but it doesn't mean the end in the sense of the finish of a time series. It is to do with the culmination of potential. The telos, better, you know, something like achievement, fulfilment, flourishing, Culmination of all the seeds. So think of us, you know, a, a, a seed. And this was actually a concept that went beyond. Was in the Greeks as well. Aristotle was quite strong on it. And Tom Wright, his one of his books begins with Aristotle and Aristotle's <laughs> view of this that we all have a DNA in us that's going to um, evolve towards some um, full expression of who we are. If I'm a oak tree it'll become a flourishing oak tree if I'm a giraffe it'll become a flourishing giraffe if I'm a human it'll become a flourishing human that was their idea of the, the, the culmination, the flourishing and this is what he's picking up here uh, reaching the end um, of, uh, of our potential so here are the phrases where this perfect ca- comes in, it was first introduced in chapter 2 Uh, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. This is very interesting language. There's heavy irony on it, which I'm going to build in in a moment. It's laced with irony that the God, it was fitting, it was appropriate. That's where the irony is, because this is not obvious that the God for whom and through whom everything exists with vast originating powers that the captain of that salvation should be made perfect through suffering. That's a great irony. Um, Then he starts using the word for us, not Jesus. Chapter 6, let's go on unto perfection. 
chapter 7. He, his, why does he blame the law? Why does he get rid of the law? It couldn't create perfection. It couldn't fulfill all of God's plans for humanity. It didn't work um, psychologically. It was unable to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It didn't work. Um, the tabernacle of the cosmos is called a more perfect tabernacle, a more finished tabernacle. I like the word more. The first tabernacle was a good start, but it wasn't, it wasn't the real flourishing. The real flourishing is the, is the, is the, the renewed cosmos. Um, by one offering he's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now this, this idea beautifully caught there between receiving something but having to be, continue to be worked on it because we're being made holy um, and we are being made perfect forever. Uh, chapter 11, after he has finished talking about all the Old Testament saints, he said, without us, they would not be made perfect. So there's some idea here that God has a cosmic, cumulative social plan to perfect the whole race, and it needed Jesus to, uh, to, 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 to be done. And then this goes beyond the Old Testament. Well, it doesn't really. It's really, it's really capturing in chapter 12 the, the New Jerusalem. We've come to the spirits of just men who have been made perfect. So this... Word, perfection, is the same Greek word in all of those contexts. So um, the nature of God's rule here in the created order seems to be that perfection, quote unquote, is God's goal and final purpose in creating things, that he wanted us to be made perfect. Now I read it as it's not a, merely about character but the ability to fulfill a role. It's the ability, it's a capacity to rule and govern. It's not just about autonomous attributes of character. Um, God needs us to be strong so that we can do stuff. And if we're weak, we can't do stuff. If I want you to be a governor or a ruler, if I want people in my organisation to, to take up a particular role, that is not about their behaviour or character. That's their ability to have resources to, to meet challenges and to do great stuff. And that goes back against the idea of interiority. It, exactly, because I'm, 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 it's, it's expressing it in public spaces. Mm. Exactly. Exactly right. So the ability to fulfil a role is some amplification. Of, uh, of my effect in public and God seems to want in human beings n not for us to live lone lives interior lives but lives that make an impact um, clearly though it's a process in life now this is important because if Jesus so think about it Jesus at the age of 12 was not perfected according to this he still had many more challenges in life to learn from but was he he was sinless at 12 and sinless at 22 and sinless at 30 so there's development totally to do without sin it's absolutely if I look at a 12 year old who's behaving narrowly that's not sinful it's because they're 12 that's nothing to do with sin whatsoever it's a developmental stage but do I want the 12-year-old to stay as a 12-year-old? They can't become the CEO of a company while they're 12. 
So they've got to grow. So the idea of growth is not to do with the excoriation of sin as a moral journey. It's to do with the acquisition of experiences. It's to do with the enrichment of interpretation of life. It's to do with resilience. This is phenomenal. This is what life does. It, it's to do with getting tough. It's to do with um, being broad-minded. These are not really these are not moral qualities. They're developmental qualities. It happened to Jesus. It'll happen to us. So that's what I mean by the end of the developmental pathway. Does that make sense to people? I think it's a really intriguing concept. Um, so what this says, if I step right back, what do I say about humanity? I'm, I'm talking humanity, not Christianity, humanity. We are teleological beings in a teleological system. We are people wired for goals, outcomes and the end. And our system should be like that too. So I, I just had a conversation with a, one of my clients today. I don't know that he's a believer at all, but very bright guy. It's Tel, he's with Telstra. And he's one of their bright, innovative people. Just come back from Silicon Valley. And uh, conferences where you know some of these billionaire young startup, 24-year-old startups, whiz kids. The common theme for him, which he was contrasting that with the impoverishment of large corporates in Australia. None of, them are, none of them talk about money. It's irrelevant to them whether I'm worth one or two billion dollars. What's relevant is the mission of my organisation. I want to change the world with this organisation. They're still wearing the same clothes they wore when they were penniless university students. They're, 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 they are driven by mission. And he said, well, this is a Gen Y thing. And I can see some organisations are very strong on a mission most are neutral to weak. So a good organisation is a teleological organisation because we are teleological creatures and it unlocks power and agency. Now, I get all of that out of perfection and the gospel, I don't, and yet it's, a, it's, a, it's not to do with a redemptive system. It's, a, it's God's rule. This is part of the DNA of God's rule. Um, and I keep on repeating poor old Bonhoeffer's the religious man searches furiously to reserve a place for God and today this place is at the boundary. So the sin base, the creation gospel, however, solves Bonhoeffer's problems because I've just talked about vast organisations and smart ways to design them. It's nothing to do with a sin-based model. It's to do with a creation-based model, though. It's got its roots deeply in my theology, way deeper because it's about the nature of the created order. So the second big word, the second big word to do with the nature of God's rule on the created order is suffering. This is really interesting. Uh, really interesting word. Uh, because um, it's, I think, this, it, it's definitely talking about his death on the cross, but I think more broadly he is talking about it as an in a result of just being incarnate, incarnate. Now, let's make the obvious point first again. The suffering that Jesus went through had nothing to do with a punishment for his sin. I, mean, I, I suppose you could argue that it was all to do with the punishment for our sin, but I do feel that he has a broader meaning at play here, which is 
that just by being incarnate, Jesus uh, hit resistance. It's the nature of being a bodily creature. There is otherness. There are other people. There's other events. There's other circumstances. I'm not autonomous. That's what, that's what to be created means. So I'm under constraints. The phrase I like using is I live in a world of contested spaces. This is not sin. This is just to do now with finiteness. I'm not you. You're not me. We don't understand each other. We get confused. I've got to, I've got to try to listen to you. This is to do with otherness. And that... Um, it, the, the world of creation is a world of contested spaces and limitations. And Philippians 2 makes it really plain that Jesus entered that world by being born. He gave up his rights to just ex cathedra, uh, declare something and change it. Now, the, the, great, the great example of this, the greatest example, I think, of his suffering, an example we don't think of, is arguments. What's it feel like to lose an argument? Does it feel like I'm omnipotent? I mean, I, I, I get gutted when I lose arguments because in my case they're often proposals and coming second means I don't get the work. And you knock yourself around and say, oh, what did I do wrong there? I didn't persuade them. To not persuade people, you think about it in your life, people think you're an idiot, people think you're... Bought, you know, I haven't persuaded you, it's a, it's a gut, it guts you. Well, guess what? Jesus went through that. He, 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 had, he did not have the power to command uh, faith from the Pharisees. We can read the, we can read the stories. In, I mean, John's Gospel is just a series of arguments. He loses most of them in the sense that we read them and think, oh, great, Jesus was great. But the people around him didn't get convinced. They still thought he was an imposter. So here, how's this working, that he is omnipotent, but he has submitted himself to this otherness, which is you not being persuaded by me prayer 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 is i mean is i'm not omniscient anymore i've got to invoke god um i've got to whinge to god i've got to call out to god i'm, I'm actually one person in a contested space so the nature of work by being incarnate is not ex cathedra you know there's a sense that god does not have to work he just says and it is but humans have to work, and Jesus had to work. He had to walk, he had to get tired, he had to make plans, he had to do all the stuff we do. And I think the word suffering takes that, all of that into account, rather than just saying it was only the cross. I think it was the nature of him participating with us in an incarnate state. He, he had his wings clipped from the word go. And that's our... That's our but, but in that he exercised rule. The last point up there, that last bullet point, is a, is, a, is a really intriguing one for me, which is smallness. Because the minute I become incarnate in a small world, um, I can seem incredibly insignificant. I'm bound in time and space. Jesus was in Jerusalem, not New York, not Shanghai, not London, just Jerusalem. Tiny little space. He died with a crowd of 30 or 40 people around him. Not... 40 million, and yet this event changed everything. So the idea that God's action in this created order is, uh, uh, the nature of God's work is small actions have huge consequences in the created order that is created. Um, 
So that says, as created beings, we live in contested contexts. Or there's just nothing to do with it. We don't need to view the contested context as sinful. We don't need to do that. It's just the nature of the world we live in. It's kind of competitive. Um, so we live in a world of boundaries and connections. Um, that means I'm going to have to try and you know, understand people across boundaries. If I go to a country like Indonesia and they don't understand me and I don't understand them, that's not sinful. That's the world of boundaries and connectedness we, we have to live with. We live with paradoxes. Uh, there are consequences and feedback. I do things and, and I have unintended consequences. That's part of growing up. Part of growing up is, oh my God, I'll never do that again. If only I'd realised this was going to happen when I did that. Is that sinful? No, it's part of the feedback mechanism of being a finite creature and in a world where little actions makes vast differences. So that's what I read this Jesus suffering, you know, in that light. And the final one of the nature of uh, God's rule in the created order is that he learned obedience, which is really intriguing because this says that Jesus actively, consciously grew and learned in his life um, and out, out of the things that he suffered. This, Although he was a son, he learned obedience. So what we again can make the point is that the learning experience here can't be attributed to sin. So learning has not got anything to do with sin in his case. If I go into a situation and I'm ignorant and I blunder and I make a mistake, that's actually, I, you don't need the framework of sin to understand that. I didn't know and now I do. And if I don't know, I can, I can do stupid things. So this whole learning experience needs to be freed also from the diagnosis of it's, it's got to do with sin. It has nothing to do with sin. It seems to be the way God wants to govern the universe. And I think part of the learning that Jesus went through and that we can go through that is, to me, evident throughout the Bible is recognising the hand of God behind all things in the created order. It's, an un, it's like an unveiling and an unpackaging of the glory within everything, the, the Moses and the burning bush. It's just seeing more and more of the glory, more and more of the surprise, more and more of the, wow, I didn't expect to find God here. But it's also, I think, living a conscious and reflective life because you think about it, God could have made the universe just lumps of matter. He didn't. He wanted us as human beings driving an anima. He wanted consciousness in the universe. He wanted people who could look at the universe. I mean, Einstein said, the amazing thing is not the universe, it's the fact that we're looking at it and that we're looking at ourselves looking at the universe. God wants that, a conscious and reflective life, inquiring after the wonder and glory and everything. Now, I do this all the time personally, and I really encourage everyone to do it, which is to have a diary. I govern my life by a diary. It's another exercise in frustration. I write furiously in it and think it's wonderful and I never look at it again and no one will ever look at it again and Anne thinks what will I do with his diaries when he dies you know um, and then I finally I got solace when I read Marilyn Richardson Gilead and what's his name there the preacher who's been preaching faithfully for 40 years to a crowd of about 15 people and he's got books and books of sermon notes about as long as St Augustine and he's got this Terrible 
as he's getting old. Here, I've written as much as St Augustine, 15 people have heard it. <laughs> Do I bother archiving them or not? <laughs> but nonetheless, he lived a conscious life. He thought about his life. And I think God is just as pleased him doing that, even though he might have only talked to 15 people as St Augustine doing it and millions reading it, because God wants us to reflect on our life. He doesn't want us to just let life swim by. He wants us to, you know, to, to think back on those things I went through and think, wow, this is... Find some wonder in it. Find some intrigue in it. You know, be inquirers and inquirers with a mind's framed by the Holy Spirit. Um, um, and I think the writing of a diary is a great way to do that. It slows you down to kind of what, what happened here. I love it. I love, you've heard me say this often, but the discovering the hand of God in the narrative of life. This is the great thing the Jews were taught. A, a great book on, I think, the Bible is history by, by uh, Phillips Long made this phenomenal point. The Jews were taught to expect to find God in the narrative of life. They expect, that is their entire tradition, as opposed to anyone else around them, that I expect to find God somewhere, somehow, hence the prophets, who were the high point of that reflection. Um, and, and that's what Psalm 8 says. You know, Psalm 8, very intriguing. It, 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 it ran around in my mind for years, me thinking I don't understand the first sentence of Psalm 8. Because the first sentence of Psalm 8 is not, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic you are in all the earth. It doesn't say that. It says, how majestic is your name in all the earth? And I thought... What's he mean? There's kind of like a, a couplet going on here between God and his name. It's, and furthermore, it's the name that's majestic, not God. What, what's he driving at? Um, and for ages, I just had this niggling sense, I'm not understanding this. But to me, what is majestic is the recognition of the hand of God whenever it happens. It's like a light shining forth. And the great example is Moses and the burning bush. And, you know, surely, and Bethel is the great example. What, is, what does Jacob say? Surely God was in this place and I did not know it. And throughout our lives, there should be just moments and moments of surely God was here and I didn't see it. Praise God. The name of God means that a human being has recognised God's presence and, and, and acknowledged it. And that's majestic. So this kind of logocentricity is what I call it, the big word, but living a logocentric life, um, a conscious life with a consciousness in, informed by the gospel and the creation of active reflection and wonder, inquiry and reason. The, great, the greatest Christian minds are great inquirers because we, why do we inquire? Because we know God's at the end of all inquiry, which is fantastic. The most amazing thing I ever heard an atheist say was Robert Suskind, the inventor of string theory. I didn't understand a lot of what he said when I heard him talk in San Francisco, but the thing, what I did understand, left me, th le left me uh, floundering, particularly when he said he, he, uh, he was boxed into a corner because essentially the anthro anthropic principle has left him and others thinking, it looks like God's here after all. So his only reason for saying that he didn't believe in God was that it stopped all inquiry. And I just was like, so sad to hear that and so perplexed. I mean, it starts all inquiry. 
But anyway, um, treasuring and unpacking the, the gift of life every day. And I think that was the wonderful thing on Miroslav's talk on pleasure, meaning, and the death of God, that this, this whole thing is a gift. And we unpack it with wonder every day. But that will include learning from suffering and, fa and failure. And, and that's what drives, that will drive growth, that conscious life. So that, that picture was a picture of, you know, if I just, the three big coordinates that are not about sin. They're not about sin. They're about Jesus being incarnate, God incarnate, perfection, suffering and learning. I can use those in life. I don't have to diagnose sin. I can use those with those events I went through this week as perspectives. Does that make some sense? I want to just now conclude the last part with um, going back even further with this question of how all this fits in with the sovereignty of God. Um, because I've been, we've been investigating Jesus as a paradigm of God's rule in the created order. This is implying a, uh, a broader question. And the broader question is something in what I've, I've resolved in something I call the model of two kingdoms. Kingdom one is, is, is really... Um, well, so, sorry, let me just back off again and, and just make it, perhaps the introduction a little bit clearer. I am here looking at the nature of God's sovereignty in the face of evil and suffering. Because what we've seen now is a sort of a... What could I say? It's a muted or diluted version of God's sovereignty. It appears to be... I mean, Jesus, like it's... It's not omnipotent. Um, and so this, this, is, this is now a question. What do I do with the sovereignty of God? So, there's, so, so, so this is what I'm trying to address. So the, the normal model of the kingdom of God is, and, and it's magnificent, all of this is true, is the great uncaused cause, that God is the great uncaused cause of all of life and all of matter, um, through whom and for whom all things exist. Now, here are some of the features of that God that we believe in and declare. Omnipotence is one. And so an omnipotent God rules. Um, he just declares and it is. So, you know, work is impossible. But the critical thing is, and the Jews understood this, is that he would therefore obliterate, there can be no otherness with such a God. Such a powerful God will obliterate all otherness. Nothing can abide in his presence. The Bible says that. No man can see God and live. Our God is a consuming fire. Right? This omnipotence is, is scary. Um, secondly, he's omniscient. He knows all things. Uh, so he can't entertain doubt or inquiry. Can't entertain doubt or inquiry. God can't ask questions because then he doesn't know the answer. Um, and he must be changeless, you know, God in whom there is no shadow of turning, which means there can be no learning or no surprise in this God. He can't be surprised. So that model of God leads to a huge problem, which many thoughtful people were aware of, which simply is that that God cannot create anything. 
So the Gnostics, for instance, believe God needed all sorts of intermediaries to create because you can't have that God creating in everything. Um, and uh, the Jews uh, were aware of it, as were the Platonists, that how can an unchanging God create a changing world? And if, even if he did, how can he have anything to do if he's unchanging with a changing world? It doesn't work. Uh, this is where Ron went into the Zim Zorn theory that uh, the Jews had, that he, he cannot have any constraints. He can't abide with constraints. But the minute I, uh, so I, can, I create anything, I am constrained. So we have this problem of, of this kingdom. How does this God relate to the created order? And that is a huge, uh, a huge problem. The mystery that solves the problem, which is, and the problem is how God could, how could such a God interact with creation? How could such a God inhabit it, um, be pleased with it, have dialogue with it? And this is where we have, as it were, kingdom level two, which is the mystery revealed in Christ of God and creation inhabited by him somehow. So... In the incarnation of Christ, we have this huge riddle unpacked of how eternal omnipotence can interact with finite constraints and still be God and still rule in that context. Does that have I have I sort of framed the the sort of hugeness of that problem? Because it's not it's not a problem that we often think about, but it, but it's a problem that frames a lot of the questions we all have about you know if God is God, how come X, Y, and Z happens? And it's really important to know that the Jewish scriptures really, uh, really position this as a, as a big problem. So what they say is that there's this second order kingdom, two kingdoms, um, and it's the second order kingdom, K2 I call it, that determines rule in the created order. So, this, so the, the, the big question is, what would rule from a heavenly, omnipotent, omniscient, changeless God with transcendent meaning look like in the created order it's going to be strange it's going to be really strange because if his modus operandi is omnipotence he'll blow us all apart so this isn't going to work if his modus operandi is to be omnipotent or omniscient we can't ask him questions and furthermore our destiny can't become to be like him in kingdom one we're not going to become omnipotent we're not going to become omniscient. We're not going to become changeless. That's not our destiny. So you really need this intervening kingdom, which was revealed in the mystery of Christ. That's why, that's why I keep saying Christ is the code. He's the DNA that unlocks these, the answers to these big questions. What we've been looking at is what rule could look like in that middle kingdom with these three big... You know, he was made perfect through suffering, learned obedience. So there's a new kind of rule here that's, that's at work. Um, I think that the particular rule that's in view in the Bible, to be honest, begins in Genesis 1 and 2 because I am of the opinion the Bible assumes God created something out of nothing, but it's not what's talked about in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 verse 2 seems to assume a pre-existing material world that is shaped. So the great creative chapter, 1 verse 2, is about design 
not the calling forth of, non, of existence from non-existence, although the Bible does declare that's happened. Really, Genesis 1 is more about shaping a mess. And, and that's, the, that's the picture. Um, they, they are already caused, but they're not shaped. Now, that's what we do. Because I don't bring something out of nothing. I mean, creativity is my professional life, and I talk about this to people a lot. You've only got two, you've only got two theories of creativity, ex nihilo, which is spontaneous combustion. There was nothing, and then there was something, and I did it. Or there was something, but I shaped it. It was a mess, but I shaped it, which is what we call design. And it's the second one that is we play in all the time. I, I, am in a, I receive materials, and life does that to us. It gives us events, it gives us circumstances, it gives us parents, it gives us our DNA. We get stuff, don't make it up, we don't create it, we're not self-autonomous. What's our job? Shape it. That's what we see happening in Genesis 1. We're shapers. Does that make sense? Shape shifters. So, so I think this kingdom too, is of which Christ is the agent, is happening in Genesis 1. Um, I, the shaping side of creating the, the whole thing, though, is happening with a destiny and a goal, a, mag, a mega telos, and God's, the, God from you know, kingdom level one is, is, the, is the one whose relentless intentionality is shaping this whole, whole system. And his, his, in the wonderful phrase of uh, Ian Proven and John Walton, he wants the house to become a home, the whole of, cos, of the cosmos. What does that mean? His desire is that all the material world would express and contain the glory of God. So what that means is that in this kingdom too, the finite can hold and express the infinite adequately. Uh, change, a changing world can express immortality and transcendence. Matter can, can, can express transcendence. Um, the physical world can hold the metaphysical, and meaning, and contingency, contingency can have immutable purpose built into it. So this is just kind of, I suppose, long, long ways of saying life is meaningful. Life is meaningful. Um, and, and, and what God wants from this uh, kingdom too is he wants, um, and I'm not going to build on these, but God clearly is desiring from this earthly rule harvest. Um, he's wanting it to be expansive. He's wanting it to express himself. Uh, and the end of all of this will be the knowledge and love of God in the incarnate world. So the modus, so we get a modus operandi here, and I think we get many others of a, a new. There's a, there'll be a new kind of counterintuitive power at work here, where um, the meek will inherit the earth. God's strength will be made perfect in weakness in many circumstances. Instead of omnip, omniscience, we get uh, learning, a world of learning, a world of reflection, a world of growth and inquiry, um, and a new kind of transcendence, which I call meaning invested in time. And, and, and we should expect to find purposeful narratives in life. Now, I'm going to finish by, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just to say that um, this structure 
of finding the traces of God's kind of rule in the mess of life without sin structures many of the Psalms. So one of the things in reading the Psalms, which I, I, we might talk about next time, is we get thrown by words like chastisement. Um, I think it's up here somewhere. He's having a bad he's having a bad hair day, right? When he wrote th this psalm, things were not working out. Uh, is it verse eighteen? Yeah, the Lord has chastened me severely. But he has not given me over to death. Now, this is really interesting because I use this phrase quite a lot. Now, if we have the sin-based paradigm, I am being chastened for doing something terribly wrong. And I would read the whole psalm as the result of a sinful condition by Israel and myself. That may sometimes be the case, but what I've just been trying to say is it is not, does not have to be the case at all by Virtue of being incarnate, in creation, you'll be in a contested space and you'll have bad days. And that's what he's saying is the Lord chasing me severely. I think he, all he's saying is that God's sovereignty is behind the ups and downs and vicissitudes of life and the challenges of life and being a contested space. So he's, he's kind of happy to attribute to God. Um, nothing can happen outside of God. But me being chastened severely is like Jesus suffering. It just it's 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 me in the contested spaces of life. So I read this psalm, you know, I go to a lot of these psalms when I'm having bad hair days, like like losing a big account. <laughs> and and I really identify with this, which is the thing begins it's like give thanks to the Lord. For he's good, it's sort of like, this is coming out of gritted teeth. Uh, he doesn't believe any of this. He, he, well, it's triumphalism. And then immediately, verse 5, when hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. It's great, I love that. He brought me to a, a spacious place. But as we go down, he, he from triumph, you know, he in verses 9 uh, and 10, all the nations surrounded me. Uh, in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side. They swarmed around me like bees. So he's in a, he is in a world of contest. In his case, it happened to be probably physical contest. It's not in our spaces. Um, but in the world of contest, he is learning. He is expecting to find God there. He is expecting to recognise God's presence in the contested spaces. And that's the turning point verse in the middle, which is verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my defence. He's become my salvation. And in a way, that's what Jesus found in the resurrection. And that's what we find in life's contested spaces, that God is there. That life is not a mess. That life is purposeful. That we are being perfected. That he is very present, even in times of trouble. Um, and we get through to the kind of much more rich recognition of God's presence in the second half of the psalm, which has got the very famous, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvellous in our eyes. This sense that God worked through circumstances to express himself. Um, and so we can expect in life's journey to 
uh, find contested spaces, but work our way through them. We can, we can, we can expect there will be a representation of power that comes through meekness. We can expect that God will um, want us to grow and amplify through circumstances. Um, and I think these, um, this psalm and others are, are really read richly through that growth and development framework. So if I go back to my story, um, and if I were, instead of having a sin-based frame, and this is where I'm finishing, I had a frame of we're in a created order and God wants harvest. And I read my week through Psalm 118, and I use some of the paradigms I've talked about tonight, which is uh, life is about growth and development. Um, God actually wants expansion and development. He wants us to be bold. You know, my wife is bolder than I am. Sometimes when we're doing something like, gee, was it scary to think of starting an office 10,000 miles away hang on, he's a God of expansion. He likes boldness. He doesn't like fear. He wants you to try a few things. Parable of talents. Yeah, it seems like on the whole, at least I'm in the same vibe as God if I'm expansive. Mentoring my young friend who's in a frustrated... Well, guess what? Life's full of contested spaces, my dear. Nothing wrong with that. Don't try and find blame. Grow out of it. Learn out of it. Reflect about it. You might learn about yourself. Perhaps you've got some weaknesses you could learn about here. Perhaps they have too. And you could learn to do some upward management. It's a really smart way in contested spaces. You've got to learn to manage all of that. That's wisdom. Um, no help for really bad golf. That's just like a talent. <laughs> um, so I guess this framework of... Uh, uh, the, the creation offers us way richer ways to diagnose life um, and uh, when you can take sin out of the equation and still have a life of uh, contest, a life of uh, perfection. God's, what, God, what God seems to be wanting out of this journey is that we be made perfect. That's what's happening to us all and we don't get, made, we don't get born that way so we've got to go through a passage um, and he's in that game. Um, and the trajectory we can offer ourselves and others is this doesn't finish on this earth. It's actually all of these skills, all of these capabilities and achievements are being fashioned towards an ongoing uh, management of the cosmos.